Most of us love the idea of traveling, but between the constraints of money, time, and the hustle and bustle of day-to-day -day life, few of us ever get to visit all of the places we'd like to experience. On this show, Phil and Pete have conversations with interesting people who have, and do, live in some of the most remote and exotic locales on the planet. Together, we'll travel the world from the privacy of your earbuds in Vicarious Encounters. Everybody, welcome to this episode of Vicarious Encounters. I'm Phil. And I'm Pete. And this week we have the pleasure of talking with Tom Vassell about the time he was in Korea. But before we get to him, Pete, why don't you tell me what's been going on with you? Well, I've got this side gig as a security guard. And uh, yesterday I got to work the Coldplay concert here in Dallas. It was their first U.S. show. They just came here from Mexico City. And it was really impressive. I, I'm not a huge Coldplay fan, but they put on a heck of a show. And they, they gave all of the fans these little light-up bracelets. And they lit up the entire place like a Christmas tree. They had these kind of coordinated flashing lights of different colors. And, man, that on top of the laser beams and the smoke show, it was pretty impressive, even if you couldn't hear the music. And the music wasn't bad either. Okay, so they were able to remotely change the colors of the wristbands. Yeah. Yeah. They, to a bunch of different colors. I don't know what the color spectrum was to it, but to a bunch of them. And they were able to like do them in different parts of the stands so that they could actually, in fact, at one point there was a song about love and they actually lit up only certain people's wristbands in certain sections. And they made hearts in the stands among three different sections of these grandstands among the 50,000 or however many were there. Wow, that sounds really cool. It sounds it was almost, pretty impressive. Yeah, it sounds like almost enough to distract me from my dislike of Coldplay and appreciate the event. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about what about you, Phil? What's going on in your world? Well, I am actually uh, packing up and gearing up to head down to St. Louis to a gaming convention called Geekway to the West. It is uh, the Midwest's uh, best gaming convention, not called Gen Con, in my humble opinion. It's a uh, very small, only, you know, a few thousand people, but I'll be down there working with a great company uh, called Capstone Games, teaching some of their games to some of the people that come. So I am looking forward to that. And it's actually really cool. We're recording this episode right before Geekway to the West starts, and actually it will be releasing the Tuesday of the week of Gen Con. So I'm excited about that as well. And obviously we're releasing a Gen Con because our guest this uh, week is Mr. Tom Vassell, the brains behind the Dice Tower Network. If you are familiar with the Dice Tower YouTube channel or any uh, thing to do with gaming, if you've heard about a game or heard a review of a game, there's a good chance that he's the reason that you heard it. And Tom spent a significant amount of time in Korea. And so we are here, obviously, to talk about travel. And so we're going to talk to Tom about his time in Korea. Tom, how are you doing today? Doing really good. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm glad to be here. A little jealous not to be going to Geekway of the West, because I think it is the best Midwest convention. Gen Con is bigger, but Geekway is better. Geekway has a lot of heart, which I appreciate. Everyone there loves to game. <laughs> um, so tell us, uh, when were you in Korea? Uh, yeah, so I was in Korea. Man, it's 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 so long since I've been there in a, in a sense. But uh, I went to Korea in uh, 2000 and well, 2002, I believe. And we were there just shy of 10 years or 2001. Sorry, 2001. Yes, 2001. We were there just shy of 10 years. So I say 10 years because we always round up in the ministry. Sure, sure. You say <laughs> you say we who, who does that include? Well, initially it was, I, I took my wife and my one-year-old daughter. Uh, when I came back, I had six daughters. Um, so it was a very profitable trip. <laughs> you were fruitful and increased. Well, you know, when we went initially, so the reason I went out there, because God just closed a lot of doors for me in America, and I was looking for somewhere to go. And my wife's father was uh, running a school in Korea, teaching English as a second language, which is a big way to get into Asia, period. He offered me a job and I said, there's no way on earth I'm going to work for my father-in-law. I still think that, um, but pretty much everything else closed. So I said, all right, we'll go there for six months only. And it six months quickly became 10 years. It was a fantastic time. We really enjoyed it. And we only really came back because, you know, just some strong leading to come back. And my daughter needed some medical care that was only available in America. 
but yeah, we loved it. So give me a picture of what it's like. What do you love about Korea and the people? Well, first of all, I want to be clear as we talk about this, we're talking about South Korea Mm because a lot of people get confused about that in general. South Korea and North Korea are two very different countries. North Korea is probably the most closed country in the world. It's the most oppressed country. Very few foreigners are in there at all. You know, there's probably less than 100 Americans in, in North Korea. Um, South Korea, though, is a thriving first world country with technology on par, if not better than America. I didn't know what to expect. I knew nothing about Korea. I didn't know the difference really between Korea and China when I went. I knew there was a Korean war, but that was about the extent of it. So um, getting there, it's just, you know. Now, I traveled around in Asia, and there's a lot of similarities between Asian countries. They all have their unique flavor. They're all different. But the the difference in culture between Asia, which is centered around people, centered around meals and food and getting together. Um, Like one of the biggest differences is in America, we have this whole individuality thing. Like the Koreans do not particularly understand Clint Eastwood type movies, you know, the one guy versus everyone, because it's it's a team. It's a group of people. They're one. In fact, their their language, Hangul, is the one language. And and that's and that's a big Asian thing in general, um, that the folks in Asia, they, they tend to do things in groups. And, you know, there's just a more of that community aspect there. So there has to be a bit of a tension, I would think, because being an American yourself, that, that that's a little countercultural to what you're experiencing. Yet it seems like somewhere along the way you gained an appreciation for that. Tell me about that process for you. Oh, well, it's an interesting. Yeah, you know, I, when I went to college, they taught us the uh, well, I forget it was the five steps of a uh, culture shock. You know, and there's the first is the tourist stage, and you go and everything looks amazing, and then it starts wearing on you. I, I, I will admit me and my wife are a little different in the sense that we try to find the good in wherever we go. And so even when we left Korea, there was there may be a few things. I mean, there's always, you know, if you said, what don't you like? I could say I didn't like this and like that. But the vast majority of things I liked and the fact was 99 percent of the people we ran into were just so loving and, and we were treated so well. It really actually made me reevaluate uh korea changed my worldview in many ways for one thing it showed me there was a world you know because i'd never been outside america before and two it showed me that we in america are often quite harsh towards people who do not act like we do we're like learn our language you know do this do that and in korea they're trying to learn english so they can talk to me and that was such an, an odd thing for me if i ever looked befuddled somewhere and I, sometimes I would try not to look like I was on a subway. I'm trying to figure out how to get to the next stop. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try not to look like I don't know what I'm doing because I know someone will come up and try to help me. <laughs> so, you know, that, and I really like that. Okay. So if Pete and I were to have visited you while you were there, what would you have taken us to see? What would we have eaten? What would we have done? Okay. Well, you know, so one thing that's interesting about Korea, South Korea is that, um, First of all, South Korea is kind of like two different countries in many ways, just like America is. We have cities and we have, the, you know, the, the rural areas. Um, but Korea has Seoul and then everything else. Uh, people don't realize that there are more people who live in the Seoul metropolitan, you know, metro, metropolitan area than live in most states in America. You know, it's such a it's huge. Thirty million people, you know. Um, in this one area. So it's a very crowded space. Uh, In fact, my kids were just, their minds were blown when we came back to America and they saw all the amounts of fields and open spots and lack of giant apartment buildings everywhere. But if you came, um, I would put you up in my house because I had a nice little house that had an extra guest room. Uh, If I didn't live there, I would, I don't know what we'd done. We would have put you up in someone's house. Um, and much, most people in Korea live in apartments, or at least in the Seoul area. Okay, in the in the rural areas, there's more houses. It's kind of an odd thing. If you're poor, you probably live in a house. If you're more well off, you live in an apartment in the city. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So we put you up in a room. Taking you out to eat, it would depend. I would try to gauge you. If you are the, I don't want to touch anything American, um, then yes, we'll take you to a bulgogi restaurant, which is very similar to the ones they have here in America, because again, that's the kind of food Americans will eat. And it's basically just, you grill the meat yourself, you cook the meat yourself, and then you eat it with rice. It's a pretty simple thing. And the meat is pretty much, you know, you're not, you're not going to be that thrown off by it. In fact, every time we take people out to eat, they're like, Korean food's pretty good. Like, yeah, well, that's the tip of the iceberg, really. <laughs> you know, Tell the, me about the, the rest big, of the iceberg. Well, I mean, the main thing in Korea by far is kimchi. It's uh-huh. the one food that's associated with Korea. It is the food that when I first tried it, I was like, I don't really like this that much. It's basically pickled. Well, they let they take cabbage, they put red pepper paste on it, and then they let it decay, <laughs> which, you know, Americans get all huffy about, but that's the same thing that you, it's the, you make it the same way you make sauerkraut. But, you know, the longer I got there, the more I ate it, the more I liked it. And now I crave it. I really like kimchi, but they use kimchi. I mean, kimchi is at not every meal, but it's pretty close. It's everywhere. It's involved in all the food. Then beyond that, Korean food, it doesn't delve around rice as much as people think. There's rice there. You eat a lot of rice in various things, but it's not, there's not as much rice as, say, China. And in fact, I, the, the difference in food between Chinese food and Korean food is immense. As a side note, the difference between Chinese food and what Americans think Chinese food is also immense. I always, I mean, I always tell people when I come to America, when I'm here in America, I like to eat American Chinese. I do. It's fun. It's delicious. It's not good for you, but it's good. I like it. And I also like real Chinese food. They're like two different categories. And even Korea had that. Korea, you can go to Chinese restaurants, but that was like the Korean version of Chinese. So I look at that food as Korean food in a sense. Um, But the biggest food other than kimchi, there's kimbap. Uh, which is very, very popular. It looks exactly like sushi, except it does not have raw fish in it. It's, it's vegetables and sometimes some imitation crab, maybe some pork cutlet. Pork cutlet's a big deal. Soups are really big in Korea. Kimchi chige, bude chige, um, mandaguk. There's a lot of different soups and things. And one of the things I, I it, was just a, it was just an unusual thing that I got used to when we, I was working at an international school and we had 30, 45 minute lunch break. And there's this little restaurant right next to the school. And so me and three of the other teachers, we'd go and eat there. And we opened a tab, which I didn't, I didn't know that was like a thing you could actually do in real life. You know, I always see, and I always see, you know, in a movie, they're like, put it on my tab. I'm like, oh, I don't know what a tab is. But the lady had a little book and she would write it down. We'd pay her once a month or so. And we would go in there for lunch though. And we ate whatever soup she made that day whatever it was. And so we'd have that. And then Korea has a bunch of little side dishes. So everything is put out. They have the, you know, there's always kimchi, but there's a bunch of little, there might be some little quail eggs. Uh, There might be some potatoes, um, you know, just all these different things. And the biggest thing I had to get used to in Korea was the sharing because I'm not a sharer, particularly I'm a selfish American in many ways. So the first time I went to, I was at a board game cafe, ordered a piece of cake. They brought me a piece of cake and they brought five forks with it. I was like, I don't know why I need that many forks, but it's because that's what everyone at the, you know, everyone at the table would take some bites of it. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, too bad. I'm eating it myself. (laughs) This sounds like they've uh, preempted my wife's plans. Well, yeah, maybe, (laughs) but I mean, that's just the way it is. Like, Like food is communal for the most part. You can get your own bowl and your own, like you have your own stuff in front of you and your own plate, but food is always served all over the table. The idea of, serving up a plate of different things and giving it to you is not really a thing. And you serve each other. You pour each other water. You, you know, it's a, it's, there's just a lot of things that I got used to. Uh, You know, I got used to eating in many restaurants. You ate on the floor, which I stopped going to after a few years, if I could help it, just because I could get down on the floor. Getting off was, you know, hurt my back after I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy, but lots of restaurants have, chairs and there's also fast food there i mean there's mcdonald's although it's a little bit different there's baskin robbins burger king kfc chicken there is a very big deal pizza there is different the pizza places there most pizzas have corn on them which 
when I came back to America, I was very disappointed to find out that that did not follow through because I got used to it. And whenever you bought pizza, you always got a side of some sweet pickles. And my kids are very, were very disappointed that that did not follow through to America. They've forgotten about it now, but that, when we first got like, where's the pickles? Like, they don't do that in America. Talk to me about bibimbap. That's my favorite Korean thing here. And I, but I, I confess I'm pretty clueless American. Like, I don't know if that's a, a, actually a Korean thing or not. No, that's a really big dish in Korea. Bibimbap actually was the first dish I ever ate in Korea, except I ate it on the plane flight over. And I was like, I will try Korean. I was like, this is terrible. And it took me like six months to realize I had eaten airplane food. I right. was judging a culture on airplane food. But bibimbap is basically, it's layered food. Essentially, they put rice in it and then layers of carrots and, and uh, radish and maybe some meat. I like meat. Topped with a fried egg and then a bunch of chili sauce. And then you just mix it all together and it is amazing. And my wife yes. still makes it to this day. We still eat it here once every two weeks or so because we just really, it's probably my family's favorite dish from Korea that we still eat. Question, you were talking about, you know, their Seoul and then there's the rest of the country. Were you guys based in around near Seoul or were you in one of the rural areas? Well, when we first went there, we went to a small city called Kunsan, which is uh, there's a mil- American military base there. It's the easiest place for Americans to be is near a military base because there's kind of a support system and or, you know, there's a church that we can go to because there's usually a church for the military people. Um, so Gunsan is a small city for Korea, although if you saw it, you'd be like small. It was, I think, a quarter of a million people, small city, um, a town, and maybe a village. Anyhow, um, when I was there, me and one of the Koreans there named Peter, we would occasionally go out and drive out and just go visit different people in the villages nearby. And so I saw a lot of the rural stuff there. So that was the first two years. After that, we moved up to Weijangbu which happens to be where MASH was, well, supposedly, supposedly MASH was there. Um, And uh, that's just north of Seoul and essentially is part of Seoul. It's not technically part of Seoul, but the subway line goes up there, you know, and you, if, when you, if if you drove from Weijambu to Seoul, you would not see any, (laughs) there's nothing in between them. So were there any sites that you would recommend? You're like, wow, you have to see this thing while you're there. I don't know. I'm always really bad at recommending sites to people. Like if, if you came to Korea, I would say it, I always want to know what you like, because there's different things that people like. Like if you want to go out and see the mountains and go around and just see the there's beautiful mountains all over the place. I didn't do that as much. I'm more of a, a techie guy. So I like to go see things like we always like going to this place called Lotte World, which is the world's largest um, indoor amusement park. And it's this giant mall. And you go in this mall and inside it, there's this massive, well, it's not massive compared to normal amusement parks, but it's pretty big to the point where when I came to America and I visited Mall of America and they have an amusement park inside, I was like, garbage, because this was at <laughs> least four or five times as big as that, well, the amusement okay. park. The mall might not be as big, but the amusement park was. So I like that. I like seeing the buildings. There's Seoul Tower, which is technically the tallest tower in the world. And, and that's only because it's on top of a mountain. But it's a really cool place. And if you go there, you get to see all of, you can see a lot. You can see all of Seoul on a clear day. You can, might even see Japan. It is a really cool place to see. And so that, that's the stuff in Seoul. We like go around. There's, there's different Korean palaces in Seoul. There's, you know, I don't know. We, when my wife and I, we went back a, a few years ago in 2019 and we just kind of went and we did a mix. We went shopping. We went to restaurants because we missed the food so much. And we just went, we went and saw some big sites. We went and just walked around and, and see there's big shopping centers. Everyone likes to go to those because there's thousands of stores all next to each other, which is just, it's, it's like, it's mind blowing. It actually is wearying because you will say, oh, let's walk down the street and look at stores. And after, you know, 20 minutes, you know, or two hours of this, you're like, maybe we should turn around. It's never going to end because they're so big. Paint a picture of the landscape for me. Like if we did get out of Seoul would I look at that and say, wow, that looks different than what I'm accustomed to here in the States? Is there, are there distinctive things about the, the landscape? Yeah, the biggest thing for me, from, I thought for the landscape, was just how much of it was used. Mm-hmm. So when I lived in Weijambu, 
I went hiking with my friends occasionally and we would go and we'd walk on, on clear cut trails. If there's one thing in Weejambu and other Northern cities in South Korea, you walk on clear cut trails because to just go walking off in the woods is not a wise thing because there still might be mines left from the Korean war. Oh, wow. 60 years ago. Right. But it's very hilly very hilly. There's very few flat places at all. And everything is used. I'll see like a hill that's very steep and someone's planted stuff on it. Um, when I was in Weejambu, there was a, a base there. It's no longer there called Camp Red Cloud, which was the headquarters of the second infantry division. And there was like little patch of land next to the wall with the barbed wire and there would be uh, some crops planted there. So just, it's just noise and busyness everywhere. But if you do go into the middle of Korea, there's a whole lot less. It's rolling hills. There's lots of, you know, farms and things, but there's not a lot of these big giant open fields and things like that because you can use that land for something. Okay, so you talked a little bit just briefly about the language. What what was it like for you trying to learn the language while you were there or what uh, did you have any moments any blunders that uh stick out in your mind in that experience? So the language in Korea is Hangul. And Hangul is a really unique language in the world because Hangul was invented in 1443. And it was invented by one of the kings of Korea. So the language came, the written language came after the spoken language. Spoken language came, it was a subset of Chinese and they use Chinese characters for the most part, but Korea wanted their own identity, some Chinese, some Japanese. Korean, if you've ever seen Korean writing, it's very blocky because every syllable is a block. Every syllable is a consonant and a vowel or two consonants and a vowel. So it's very, very easy to learn and write. I learned how to write Korean in like two days. I mean, it was just really simple. I can, I still know how to write my name in Korean and things like that. Learning the language, on the other hand, the, the spoken language, whew, it's just such a different syntax. Like, you know, when you're learning Spanish, adjectives go after the noun rather than before the noun. Okay, great. You know, and there's a, there's a few things that change. Uh, we, they use more pronouns in Spanish. But in Korea, in Korean, you're taking whole sections of the sentence and moving them to different areas. And it's just, it, it's a very different mindset. And I, I, I found it a little overwhelming myself. I think, I mean which is a bit hypocritical since I'm there teaching English. Um, but <laughs> but it's, there's a lot going on in it. It reminded me a lot when I was in college, I took Greek and it, it reminded me much of that same thing. Now, that being said, it wasn't very hard to get along in Korea without speaking it. So I learned enough and I feel, I always, I was, I always tell people there's like this third language that some people can speak. So my wife learned more Hangul than me. She's better at it. But I have this, I, I know this other language better than her. And that's how to communicate with people who don't communicate the same language as you. And there's just a way to do that. I don't know how to explain it from using a calculator to pointing to just, you know, you just get across. I, you know, so I never had a problem going to the store and buying anything and, you know, getting around because it's pretty simple. Also, half the signs in Korea are written in Hangul and English. And people are trying to learn English all the time. And we were also working a lot with people who were on a military post and everything. So frankly, I did not learn Korean. I learned a little bit of it. I learned enough to speak it. I never made any major blunders, like you said. I think the number 18, I can't remember what it is. One of the numbers in the teens, if you say it partially incorrect, is a pretty foul curse word. I know this because of class. Um, you know, the, the students would point it out when I said it. But, <laughs> um, but other than that, I had to learn that sarcasm is not a Korean thing. Korean humor is based on expansive, making things sound bigger, like, oh, yes, you know, they, they, they like exaggeration. That's their humor, exaggeration. Americans are very sarcastic, and I'm very sarcastic. So I'll say things with a straight face. So sometimes when my friends in America don't know that I'm being sarcastic. Well, that doesn't work at all in Korea. They're taking what I say at face value. So I learned that with the language. It's, it's, just, it's a very interesting thing, uh, but we never found a problem to get around or do anything 
When you think about that, is there a particular moment that comes to mind of sarcasm that that didn't work? Uh, I don't know if any comes to mind. I do know that occasionally when I preached, um, I would occasionally maybe say something and people would get caught up in something I said as a joke and not listen to the next few lines. Well, based realized, on what I experienced at church, I, I think that happens a lot here too. <laughs> sure, sure. One of the things I've learned, you know, you got to be careful. You make a joke and people laugh at the joke, right? But then you don't want them to miss the next thing you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that how many things I blundered into as much, but I was always very careful and use a translator whenever I thought I would really need, need one. One of the things we like to talk about is uh, the wildlife. Are there any sort of uh, animal experiences you had that are unique to your experience in South Korea versus what we see in the U.S.? Man, I wish I could talk more about this, but wildlife in Korea is very much in the background. There's birds. There is cats running around. There's dogs that are, you know, used for eating. And... You know, but I didn't see much other than I might have seen a chipmunk. I might have seen some, you know, there's bugs there. There's cockroaches there, just like there's anywhere else. There's mosquitoes there, like many other places. But I didn't find the bugs to be egregious, but we also lived in the city. And they would drive these little machines around that sprayed to kill mosquitoes and everything else. So bugs weren't too much of a problem. And even when I was out in, uh, you know, hiking around and stuff, I didn't see much other than a few birds. A lot of the wildlife has been, again, it's so populous where I lived. A lot of that wildlife was pushed back into yeah, was, the farther reaches. I was, I was wondering if maybe it was just because, like you said, if there was land, they would find a use for it. Maybe uh, the wildlife, yeah, just is way in the background. Now, I was thrown off um, when I first got there. We went to some park somewhere. And there was a park and there was things and there was ducks. And I was like, oh, great. And I saw a lady selling these little Dixie cups full of, um, they're called bundegi. It's like a little silkworm or something like that. I don't know, a little larva. And so I bought one because I was going to feed the ducks. So I'm starting to feed the ducks with these little bugs. They're little fried dead bugs. And an ajiban, an older lady, came up to me and just grabbed one out and ate it. And I thought, there's something wrong going on with this. But apparently... I had not bought food for the ducks. I had bought a snack that people <laughs> ate. Now, since I've, since I've been there, this is an old person type snack. Like this is a snack from the old days where people were starving and ate more things because I found that for the most part, kids did not eat it much at all. In fact, I, I never ate one. I never could get them up because they smelled so terrible. It was the one... It was one of two things in Korea I didn't eat. They also had these little squid, these little type squid that people would eat live. I wouldn't do that either. But I knew kids didn't like them because one day I was, I, 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 I had a big giant class I would dismiss at the end of the day. And I would dismiss them by different ways. I'd say red shirts can go, now blue shirts can go so that they go in waves. And so one day I said, anyone who likes bandegi can go. And everyone stood up and left. And I thought that can't be right. So I went and bought some bandegi and brought it in the class the next day. And I said, everyone who likes Bundegi can go. Everyone stood up. I pulled out and said, no problem, but you have to eat it a piece before you leave. Half of them sat right back down. I was like, nope, you said it. <laughs> but they don't really like that. Um, on that note, I did mention squid, and I'm sorry to go back to food, but I do like talking about food in other countries. No, that's great. We squid love is a really food. big food thing in Korea. It's all over the place. Dried squid is like beef jerky, whatever you know beef is very expensive in korea to begin with but dried squid all my kids who had, were born there teethed on dried squid um, um and to this day i still really like dried squid and if i see it at a store like i found some i was in las vegas and found this beef jerky store and i saw they had squid from korea i was very excited because i really like that so you said there are these couple things that you didn't eat and earlier you talked about eating dog i gotta know did you did you take a bite out of fido while you were there okay folks who are listening to this podcast do not get on my case here because honestly if you ever watched the movie babe wasn't that pig cute you ate him all right <laughs> Bambi, cute people eat it so don't get on my case about eating dogs i want to be really clear they do eat dogs in korea not it's not a super common thing 
it's a it's it's more of an esoteric food. Think of it in comparison to how often do you eat deer in America? Okay, okay so something like that. But people eat eat dog for various reasons, which I won't get into. But the dogs that they eat are not like cute Pomeranians and Dalmatians. Oh, Dalmatians aren't cute, but they're not cute dogs. And there are these dogs. These are big, ugly dogs, and they breed them for this very purpose to eat them. So my first birthday in Korea, I was like, for my birthday, we'll all go out and eat dog. I was just in some weird mood. So we all went out and ate it. And I thought, that's not bad. <laughs> it's, uh, it has the consistency of chicken, but it tastes closer to pork. Okay. So I, I didn't sit there and crave dog, you know, but I, I had it, I'd say in the, in the 10 years I was there, I had it maybe six times. But I will say one of the times, I was there. I took my family out. My wife went to eat it. She was eating duck. Also, ducks are cute. Um, but and I was eating dog, and I made sure that all my kids ate one piece of it. So that later on, which is now, if my kids get on my case, I'm like, you also ate dog. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. That was a, a 15-year-old preparation thing. Folks, you need to prepare for stuff like that. <laughs> Okay, so what would you say now, looking back on it, that you miss most about Korea? Um, it sounds like maybe food is oh. part of that, but uh... well, food. But I mean, you can get food anywhere. What people don't realize in America, when we came back to America, I gained weight immediately just because we don't realize how much food and different food we have in America. The options we have for food far outweighs the rest of the world. You can get anything here, so. Yes, I mean, you can't get all the food in Korea there, but I can get a lot of it in America. It costs more. It's harder to find, but I can get it here. Um, so food, but by, by far, it's people. Like I said, my wife and I went back um, in 2019, and we saw sights, and we ate food. But you know what? We were just glad to see some of our friends. The Korean people were super kind and wonderful, and we really liked it. We felt like family. Everyone treated us really well. Um, that's, that's by far what I miss the most. I mean, I also miss the safety that my wife might say, I'm going to the store and it could be one in the morning and I wouldn't blink, you know, we would be eating at a restaurant and the cook comes out and everyone loved our kids. So our, my one daughter had blonde hair. So that's a big deal in Korea. That that's like a princess has blonde hair because no one has blonde hair in Korea. So they would come out and be like, Oh, and they would just take her and just disappear with her. And we would just keep going. I would send my kids to the park. And they were like four and five and I wouldn't go with them because they'll be fine. I really miss that. That's definitely not America, you know? And so I, I, I don't know. I also miss the convenience. The public transportation in Korea is amazing. You know, I get off the bus, I get on the bus, go to the bus, go to the subway, get on the subway, go there, get off the subway, grab a taxi. And I don't feel like I'm, I broke the, my budget doing any of that stuff. I don't know. I just, I like the, the crush of people there, the crowds of people. I liked it. I, I miss that a lot. So I think in some ways this is, it's ironic because people who don't travel, I think have the perception that going somewhere other than the United States is less safe. Like everything I hear you saying, and you're not the only guest who's expressed something like this gives me the sense that it's actually safer elsewhere. What do you think gave you that sense? Well, that was the actuality of it. I mean, there was no, I mean, I heard of like violent crimes, like rape and murder, very rare. A crime against a child, I think maybe twice the whole time I was there, you heard about it in the country. So there's just a, a, a method, don't get me wrong, there's, there's, there's theft, there's crimes that happen. You know, people steal, people do things. There's, there's also, you can get hit by a car, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen. But like one of the things in America and I and and I and maybe this is maybe we overplay it as a parent. I'm always like, where are my kids? Is someone going to kidnap my kids. You, you know, when you go to any public thing, you think that that's a possibility because mm. um, you've heard so many stories about it. And because it actually happened, I just mm. didn't feel that at all in Korea. So when you were in Korea, did you miss anything about the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, we missed the food. That was that was one thing, obviously, because you, you, you're it's a whole new thing. I missed the prices in Korea. <laughs> there's a lot of cheap things for sure. Their their vegetables and things are cheap, and electronics were cheap, and you know a lot of things. But you couldn't get anything you wanted anytime you wanted like you can in America. 
I mean, especially, and that was, that was pre Amazon. We miss things like Walmart. Um, there are stores that are like Walmart in Korea, but they're much, much smaller. But I guess the biggest thing is you miss being out of the culture. And so there are whole books about this. So I'm not going to try to go into it too much, but there's a, you know, the, I, I, you've all heard about third culture kids. That, that is a thing, right? So a real brief summary, uh, if that means you're, you're like born in, from one culture, but you live in another culture. And so you don't have any real true identity. Because you're not really part of, you know, like I wasn't Korean. I'm not part of Korean. But then I would go back to America and my family had aged 10 years. You know, marriages had happened. Kids had been born. And people talk about different things there. And you feel almost like you're left out of the loop. You know, and then everyone gets together for family gathering. I was like, hey, remember when we did this, this and this? You're like, uh-huh. I wasn't there. So, no, I don't remember it. So that's, I think, the biggest thing. Well, we'll get into this in a little second, but that, that, that affected me a lot when I came back. I missed, I didn't miss movies. Yeah, all the movies they show in Korea are, they show the American movies with Korean subtitles. I'm like, cool, fine by me. Yeah, I, I guess I miss people in America. We have Facebook and we have ways to communicate with people, but I just miss my friends. What did you not miss about the U.S. when you were away? Is there anything you were like, you know, this is the way it was when I lived in the U.S. And now that I'm in Korea, I don't miss that at all. Well, I think I could say that in reverse now that I've come back is mm. it's way busier here. Korea is a pretty busy country. I was always rushing, but my life is much busier here. There's much more hustle bustle and it is hard for me. And I struggle with the fact that Americans and this includes me. So I don't want to be like any any pious person here, but we're so centric, you know, this podcast is one of the longest periods of time that I've ever talked about Korea in a row because people be like, Oh, you were in Korea. Tell me about Korea. You talk and about five minutes in they're done. They're, they're bored for the most part. And I've talked to other missionaries. And so if I run into a missionary, I want to learn about their country because I know they want to talk about it, but we aren't as interested in that. You know, people talk about the Kardashians and, Will Smith slapping someone at the Oscars for ad nauseum for a really long time. But I want to talk about, you know, a culture that I was part of. And I find that Americans, for the most part, just aren't that interested in it. Um, so I didn't miss that. And again, that, that's, that could be the same old world. You know, many countries have their own culture that they're very immersed in. Korea is very proud of their culture. Very proud. But I didn't miss that. Um, that like a lot of Americans don't even look outside their city or state, let alone the, the country. If you had to pinpoint or uh, explain as you look back over your time there, how would you say that it has affected your worldview? How have you changed? Um, how has your concept of yourself changed as a Christian, as an American? How are you a different person now? Well, globalization is something I didn't, I didn't think about. So, Full disclosure, I, I was raised as a very strong, very strong, independent, fundamental, Baptist, Christian, conservative. That worldview doesn't work very well when you travel. The ugly American stereotype can come out sometimes. And so I learned this in a couple of ways when I go to another country. I'm, it's not that that country is weird. It's just different. And it's not that it's worse. It's just different. And so I had to like face hard truths in me that I think it's okay to say, I think America is the greatest country on earth. I don't think that's a bad thing to say. People get on that, but every country says that about themselves. I hope, I hope that you think your countries are fantastic, but we aren't superior to other countries. And I learned that a lot going there. The kindness that I was shown there, the, the way people treated me made me think about that a lot. It made me think about other countries. When I was in Korea, I was able to go visit Vietnam and China and Japan and Thailand and Malaysia. I was able to see other countries when I was over there and seeing all these different countries just really broadened my perspective to the world at whole. Now, on a Christian uh, perspective, I said that I was raised very independent fundamental Baptist. And here in America, if you don't like your church, no problem. Why don't you slide right over to the church right down the street? But in Korea, in each of the cities that was in, there was one English speaking church. If you didn't want to go to that church, then you're going to a Korean church that speaks Hangul. So you didn't have much of options. So I had to learn to live with the filthy liberals of this era. 
<laughs> Except as time went by, I found out they weren't quite as bad as I thought. So it made me learn to be more respectful of other thoughts and ideas. And that was a lesson I learned, I hope, I hope for the better. And one of the biggest lessons I learned there, and one I really struggled with for a long time, is the concept of forming friendships. So when you're in Korea, the, the, my best friends from Korea that I have still are, are the Koreans who were there because they were always there. But when you're overseas, you see people come and go. If you work with the military, there's put on deployment, they leave. You have teachers, they come, they teach for a few years, they decide, hey, I'm going somewhere else. Very few people make a permanent gig out of it. And so I constantly had people coming and going. And it was difficult to form friendships with people when you knew they were going to be gone in five months. It became bothersome because it, it, it's hurtful, right? It, it, it hurts when a good friend leaves. When good friends leave all the time, you're like, huh. But I talked to someone one time and he said, you need to look at this as God's put this in your life to meet so many different people. And that's the case. We've met people who now reside all over the world. When my wife and I went to Germany one time, we went and saw some people who were people we had known from Korea. We've gone back to Korea. We've met people from Korea here in America. I know people all over the world from different places that I've met. And I've been blessed with that. And so that was kind of a, a perspective that changed, which is good because that transient nature has moved to everywhere now, you know, even now here in America. Good luck having friends that are going to stay in your city for 20, 30 years. People move yeah. around a lot and do change places. That's true. Well, this, this next question, uh, it may be hard for you because you are so well-traveled, but I'm curious if you had an all expenses paid trip anywhere in the world for two weeks, where would you want to go? Ooh, so it's gotta be somewhere you've never been before. Yeah. So I think if it's somewhere I haven't been before, probably Africa, because that's the one continent. Well, I'm in Australia either, but I feel like I'm going to go to Australia in my life. I don't know why I just have that feeling that's going to happen at some point. But Africa, I've, I've always wanted to go there to the continent and just visit various countries there. I, because I think Africa is the continent I understand the least about. You know, we have any, all of our perceptions as Africa. The or something you'd like to see in Africa that you're aware is there somewhere? No, I would love to see Victoria Falls. But I okay. mean, other than that, no, I, I would be content going anywhere from Egypt to South Africa to... I don't know. I'm still learning all the names of the countries there, but I think it would be good for me to see some of that. Strap in, because it's time for another Vicarious Encounters Top 5. All right. Today we are going to talk about our top five novels. And before we begin, I will confess that as an English teacher, this was wildly difficult for me to do. And so I may have cheated, but we'll talk about that later. Number five. My number five, though, is the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And the reason I picked it is because it was the first novel that I picked up and read in one sitting. I literally could not put it down. I skipped meals. I read it in about a 24-hour period, and I just didn't leave my room. That was like a sophomore in high school, and I got a hold of this thing, and I'm like, this is fascinating, and I do not want to go away from this story to do anything else. So that's why it's my number five. My number five is the picture of Dorian Gray. And I, I have to confess, this was a particularly difficult list for me to make because I felt like I had to balance entertainment value with significance. And for me, what I love about the portrait of Dorian Gray is not so much the writing. Um, it's the significance of what's communicated to the message of it. And it's, it's just a powerful message about no matter what you do, there are consequences to your actions. Oh, um, yeah. I also thought about the significance of mine. <laughs> um, actually, I think Pete's entire list is like dusty for me for that reason. I, I'm sorry, I did not do that. I just picked things that I found enjoyment in. Um, I, I have, I, and also I'm probably missing 200 books because uh, this would take a long time for me to put these in order. I also cheated in that almost every single one of mine is a series. Yeah. All right. So first one is Night Train to Rigel. This is by um, uh, Timothy Zahn, who is one of the best sci-fi writers. And this is about a guy who rides a train 
this train runs from solar system to solar system. It's an, it's an alien train. It's hard to explain the science behind it, but essentially this turns into a detective mystery. The guy's kind of a rough and tough detective, but then turns into something affecting the entire galaxy. It's a really good series. Um, Timothy Zahn's one of the best sci-fi writers in existence. Number four. All right. Well, my number four is Deadbeat by Jim Butcher. And uh, when I said I cheated, it was uh, much the way Tom did. All the other four of mine actually are one book representing an entire series. And this is book eight in the Dresden Files. I became obsessed with them a few years back. And I suppose this is a bit of a spoiler, but the book is like 15 years old now. But anytime my main character can ride into battle on a zombie T-Rex in the middle of Chicago, I'm in. Let's do it. (laughs) Number four on my dusty list is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And it's just so diagnostic of the human condition and particular the situation that we find ourselves in in our culture right now. At this point, I regularly see people holding their cell phones and think to myself, we now have the centrifugal bumble puppy. My next one, I'm not necessarily going to recommend as much. It's Sustend Chronicles. It's a series of eight sci-fi space opera novels. The main character is Sten starts as a young guy trapped on a planet where he's essentially a slave and eventually overthrows the emperor (laughs) as the series goes by. Really cool. They do great writing. They tell backstories on all these different characters. I really enjoy it. It has a few flaws, in my opinion. It's a little James Bond. The main character is a little James Bond-ish in the ways I don't like James Bond as he runs across different people in his his path. But other than that, I and he's a bit of a Mary Sue, but I don't care. I still really like the the storyline. Number three. All right. My number three is Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett. I chose this of all the Discworld books because it's the first one that I read. The Discworld series is so incredibly rich in story and in humor and in everything else. It is the only book series that even as I reread these books, I laugh out loud because it's just absolutely hilarious. But, you know, you may have seen one of the one of the most popular viral posts that I see going around over and over and over again is from a character in this book talking about how uh, how poor people spend more money on boots because they have to buy cheap ones over and over and over again. And if you have if you've seen that post, it's from the Discworld series. But he has this great way of taking this completely bizarre, atypical uh, fantasy world and relating it to real life in a humorous way. You guys are going to sell me on some of these books. I, I do have to confess that. But my uh, the third my, my third one on my dusty list. <laughs> it's is, so uh, opposite. Of... <laughs> guards, guards, your third book. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Flies is, uh, it to me, it is such an interesting piece about ethics and there's such delicious irony in the book especially the way it finishes uh and yes it was written a a hot minute ago but i I will not ruin it for those that haven't read it yet um and it resonated with me deeply particularly as somebody who wears and needs glasses the character piggy and what happens to him in the story it was uh, was deeply moving to me Ah, i can't put books that are that depressing on my list all right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my number three is as the Dragonlance series, um, particularly my favorite of that series is Dragons of the Autumn Fall, I believe. Uh, this is a series that's based in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, um, but Autumn, is really well done, has really strong characters. Autumn Twilight, you're right. Did I? What did I say? Anyway, I really like Dragonlance. I like the different characters. It's the entire group coming together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's your typical dungeon party type thing, but then they took it and ran with it in fun directions. It's very much by the, on the rails type of a novel series. I don't know. I just have a lot of fun with it. I've got to geek out with him for a second because I love this series of books and I almost am sad that I didn't include this in my list now. Uh, but uh, who's a favorite character for you in that, in that series? Well, it's kind of weird because I don't know if I have a favorite character but I like the relationship between Flint and Tasselhoff so much. Tasselhoff by himself, he's a little halfling who's very irritatingly cheerful, is too much. And Flint is a depressing, unhappy dwarf in many ways. But the two of them have a strong bond. And the final part of the series with them written together is almost brings a tear to your eye. It's, it's really well done. Number two. 
for number two, I see uh, we're potentially going to have a little uh, crossover here, but my number two, and the reason it's number two is, is twofold. First, it's number two because the series is not finished yet. Second, it's number two because it just couldn't quite make it number one. It's probably 1A for me, and we'll talk about that more when I get to number one. But my number two is The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. I think that there is no one in fantasy today doing anything as good as what Brandon Sanderson is doing. I walked into the way of Kings and I said, Hey, look, here is a fantasy series that in no way resembles Lord of the Rings. And it was a breath of fresh air. It was something completely different to my mind. And of course he had other influences. I'm sure that I'm not familiar with, but after seeing so many um, Tolkien copycats throughout, uh, throughout the years, it was just so refreshing to see this. And uh, I put the way of Kings cause it's the first book, but in all honesty, the ending of book two is probably maybe the greatest ending I've ever read. Like it was a actually get up and cheer moment whenever I read it happening. Cause it was just such a cool, like, ah, oh, that was amazing moment. Uh, but yeah. So if you, uh, haven't read Brandon Sanderson, Pete. I know you haven't. You need to uh, change that. I'm, I'm getting sold. I can't wait to hear uh, to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, so my number two is The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, don't give in to the idea that you saw the movie because like everything else, the book is much better. Uh, and The Count of Monte Cristo to me defines what epic means. It is one of, It is one of the most epic stories I've ever seen or read in any form. And it's truly magnificent. Um, I highly recommend it uh, unreservedly. I feel all of those ways about the Monte Cristo sandwich. <laughs> I'm with you. And the Monte Cristo sandwich does not teach us that vengeance is a good thing. That's right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> My number two, I put on the list because I have such nostalgia for this book. I read it as a teenager and it really affected me. And I think about it often. It affected, I don't know. Anyway, it's called Rifles for Weighty. This is a one, the Newbery Award, I believe, in the 60s. Uh, it's about a young man who joins uh, the Union Army in the Civil War and through a mix up ends up fighting with the Southerners for a while and then back to the Union side. And it shows both sides of the war, the front lines, the people who are there has a very strong villain um, in it. Uh, but I really liked it. It's a young adult book, but this one just really left an impact on me. So I put it as my number two. Wow. Number one. And my number one is the book Ender's Game. And I put it in there because it's the first in the series. When in actuality, probably uh, the second book in the series, Speaker for the Dead, is my favorite. It doesn't, it doesn't have as wide an appeal as Ender's Game. I have been teaching for 15 years. I have taught Ender's Game to my classes every one of those years. I have read the book now. Uh, pushing a hundred times and I never get tired of it. I'm always ready to see it. The author has an ability to create empathy in his main character that no one else can touch within the first three paragraphs. I loved Ender Wigan and I cared about what happened to him. And I've never, I've never experienced that since like, it's just absolutely incredible. Plus the audacity to write a, war story that's about redemption is just powerful oh i just love it so much well kids is the main part now you have to admit it's not as good as the movie oh that is the most horrible disgusting <laughs> thing i have ever heard okay let me let me tell you because i always show the movie to my classes and we actually i can uh tell who's been paying attention during the book because the kids who actually read the book hate the movie and the kids who haven't actually enjoy it. But I tell my kids this, the movie is like someone took your kitten and put it in a blender and gave it back to you as a smoothie. It's still your kitten, sort of. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for that. Uh, I, I really like this series a lot too, although I have not read the Ender half of the series. I've read the other half, the oh, Bean half. Yeah, that's And great... I actually like Ender's Shadow. I like that better than Ender's Game, but although it wouldn't make any sense if you haven't read Ender's Game. 
Yeah, I I, so, I love the whole series. So it's a it's a it's a solid series. Although you are going to watch kids be pretty brutal towards each other. It's not as bad as some more modern stuff. You know, the with the the Hunger you know, Games the, or things the like Hunger that. Games or Red Rising. It's not as right. bad as those, but it's still kind of brutal. Oh, Red Rising is so depressing. I could only make it through two books. Oof, that was rough. Well, you need to read the third because it gets it finishes oh. off on a happy note. Oh, good to know. <laughs> My number one is Lord of the Rings because it's the greatest novel ever written. And I did cheat on this one and uh, it's technically three books, but it's, it's one story. Um, and there's a reason why it, it, it was copied so many times because it really is that good. Um, and once again, please don't allow watching the movie to be a substitute for reading the books. I mean, See, Pete, I was just about to say, Pete, I was just about to say, I was joking with Phil. I, I don't like the Ender's Game movie. I might have liked it if I had never read Ender's Game, but I actually like the movies better than the book for Lord of the Rings, for real. I think they are straight out awesome. Well, let, let me say this. The movies were well done. Okay. And the content was treated respectfully. However, the most important thing about Lord of the Rings is how the story ends. And the movies screwed it up in a big way. I don't know that it could have been done in the movies in a proper way, though. I don't know if that would have worked in the movies. The scouring of the Shire is probably the most powerful part of the story to me. Yeah, it would have been really hard to do it on on film. Yeah, I will will grant that. You're probably right. All right. So my number one has already been mentioned, and Phil ruined it by saying it was coming up and leaving no option, The Way of Kings. But let me explain here. (laughs) First of all, um, I didn't know who Brandon Sanderson was until I read The End of the Wheel of Time, which he wrote the final books of that since Robert Jordan passed away. So I read that and I thought, oh, I'll read some other stuff this guy did. To be fair, I made a, a thing of my own for this top five that I would only put one series from an author because I would have also put The Reckoners and uh, Mistborn on there. You, but we could have cheated even further and just put the Cosmere and <laughs> sure. But I'll, I'll say this, the way of the Kings is my favorite book series of all time. And it's not even close. I think it's a better world than Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm, I know that's, that that's going to be blasphemous to people, but he creates an entire universe or a world here with its own set of magic and storylines and characters all kinds of characters that you can root for. And you said that the ending of book two made you stand up a chair. The ending of book three, I almost fell out of my chair. Oh yeah. That was so exciting. Also great. I completely agree. And and if you read the way of Kings, that's the first book. It's called the Stormlight archive. If you read the way of Kings, be warned the first 20 chapters, I was like, woof, is anything ever going to turn out good? Because the the main characters do not have a great start of it. Especially the main, main character does not have a great start of it, but he how he ties stuff together. He'll write a chapter in the middle of his books that has nothing to do with any of the characters. It's like takes place on the other side of the world with characters you never met. And it's still fascinating because it builds a little bit more of the world and you might meet those characters again. His characters are fairly likable. He takes one of his best characters in book three and shows you their very dark past. His back, he does backstories in each of his books, which usually I like skim through backstories because I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah get back to where we're at just it's it's so phenomenal and good news everybody he finishes his series all right you know so this this uh stormlight archive is a 10 book series however it's split into two halves so the next the, the final book of the first half book five will be finished in december 2023 and unless lightning strikes from the sky i know he'll do it because he has finished every one of his books and he writes like five or six books he just ran a kickstarter for four books that he wrote during COVID because he was bored. Extra books on top of yeah, the ones four extra books other than the stuff he writes. I don't know how he does it. He's a machine, but his stuff is good. You owe it to yourself to read The Way of Kings. It's also very clean. You know, a lot of modern fantasy, sometimes you feel like you have to take a bath, you know, Game of, think Game of Thrones style. The Way of yeah. Kings is very different. It has a very clear good and bad, but does show various shades of gray and shows decisions that people make. Man, I love it. I love everything about it. Pete, he is the only author I've ever seen. You can go to his website and there's a percentage ticker on all of his drafts. 
that is updated continuously of how far he's gone. <laughs> it's, wow. it's incredible. He, yeah, he's an absolute machine when it comes to uh, that. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up the top five. So are you ready? It's time for another unpopular opinion. And this week's episode, I get to feature uh, another one of my unpopular opinions. I'm, I'm noticing a bit of a trend. It seems like uh, I have a lot of unpopular opinions. Um, and uh, but hopefully, Phil, you'll you'll come up with some more and, and maybe we can get some guests to weigh in, although per perhaps that's dangerous territory. Uh, but for me this week, my unpopular opinion is it is ridiculous that we are not using the metric system in the United States. There's a couple of reasons why I say this. One is there's just very few people who even know how to use the imperial system. I, my wife and I just did some traveling. We checked into a hotel room, walked up to the thermostat, and we had no idea what to set it to. I don't know what room temperature is in Celsius, and neither does anybody else that I know of. And, and I know I very few people who can quickly and easily convert not only from Fahrenheit to Celsius, but like how many pecs are there in a bushel? You guys know? No one uses that measurement. <laughs> okay. How many square yards are there in an acre? No one knows about pecs and bushels. <laughs> uh, how many square yards in an acre? I said, I don't know about pecs and bushels. Stop changing the question. <laughs> <laughs> how many yards are there in a mile? 1,762. Nope. I'm pretty close though. 1,760. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, wow, I was off by two. <laughs> you were off by two. Uh, but point being, like, it's just, it's it's unnecessarily complicated. Uh, and, uh, hey, Phil, um, how many uh, teaspoons are there in a tablespoon? I don't know. Say three. Yeah. Tom's, Tom's, Tom's got three. it. Tom's, Tom's right. For the win in y'all's faces. <laughs> I, I have a really, I, I didn't realize uh, it was the case, but I have a weird relationship with this opinion because as a teacher uh, and especially a teacher who for the last 10 years has been across the hall from the math department, this is not an unpopular opinion at all. The math people have always wanted this change that I have worked with. They're like, I don't know why we don't do this because this is all they teach um, on the whole. You know, once you get into once you get into high school, they're not spending time. You know, they're measuring things only with uh, the metric system. So, well, at, another reason to do this is, you know, we're doing a travel podcast here. Another reason to do this is just because this is what almost the entire rest of the world uses. And it makes it easier, not only when when other people come here, but when we travel. Do you know how many countries in the world still use the imperial system? Three. You want to guess what they are? I can guess one. Yes, the United States. That's one. You know the other two? Um, Either of them? I know that that's what you're I, talking about because I know you. I know you're trying to trick us into saying Great Britain, but Great well, Britain I, uses I, some of the imperial system. I'm really not trying to trick you. I was just stunned that the the answer to this question is Myanmar and Liberia. Yeah, well, everyone guessed those. Again, some of the stuff changes Neither. over. What if you remember when we were kids? I'm assuming you guys are well at least you're somewhat in the same range. There was a really big push for America to change the metric system. That's gone away. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Although it did happen for soda. I'll never understand why. <laughs> Two liters of soda. But if you are traveling, folks, this is an important thing to know. But you, here's the thing. You only need to know three numbers. You need to know there's 2.54 centimeters in an inch. There's 2.2 pounds or in a kilogram. And basically a liter and a quarter the same thing. So that, that cheap price on gas is actually one-fourth of the price because <laughs> they're charging you per liter. The one that you can't remember, and it's very difficult to remember, is temperature. Temperature is the trickiest one um, because it's, it's uh, what, nine, five, nine over five times this plus 32. That's a yep. pain in the neck. So you just need to remember certain things, like the temperature of your house should be 22 degrees. Um, <laughs> and zero, it's pretty cold. Yeah. And, and the temperature of a human body is what, 35, I think. 37. You know, we, 37. We, we learned that pretty quickly because of uh, measuring our kids' temperatures when we were in Korea. Mm. But I would be opposed to changing. I just, I don't know that would happen. And I will say, I do like, a, I do like the imperial volume. I think as, as silly as it is with tablespoons and teaspoons and cups and pints, it makes sense. It's a lot easier to say than I want four deciliters 
And in fact, you'll find that that's not even used that much overseas anyway. They still use ounces overseas because uh, it's just a lot easier to work with. Uh, well, I, I figured when I raised this unpopular opinion that it was going to be at least one of you that was going to say, yeah, yeah, if you give an inch, it'll take a mile. No, because today we're recording this on Mother's Day, not Father Bad Joke Day. <laughs> oh, ouch, ouch. Guilty as charged. <laughs> All right, Tom. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking about your time in Korea. And if uh, any of you listeners would like to interact with us, you can find our Facebook page, uh, Vicarious Encounters on Facebook. You can also email us at vicariousencounters at gmail.com. We have a Twitter feed. We have an Instagram feed. You can find uh, posts on there as well. And if you are a Spotify member, every one of our episodes has a poll and a question to go along with it to talk about our top fives and unpopular opinions. So we would love for you to engage with us there as well. And if you just love dad jokes and you want to support us financially, you, we have a Patreon account. You are welcome to come on board and support the bad dad jokes. <laughs> All right. Once again, thanks a lot, Tom. We appreciate your time. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. I really like this. I'm looking forward to hearing other people. All right, and we'll see you guys next time.